Greetings, Tech Intersect listeners. This is producer Stephanie Renee, stepping in briefly on behalf of Professor Evans. Tanya is out in the world racking up accolades and setting the stage for our forthcoming 100th episode. So this week, we're shining a spotlight on a previous conversation that has particular significance in this season of giving. Whether you're hearing it for the first time or if it's a refresher for you diehard supporters, here's another listen to episode 44 with Akeen Sawyer. This conversation centers around the role of blockchain and DeFi in the future of the Asusu wealth building model. What we now know is crowdfunding before it got a jazzed up name. Dig in and we'll be back soon with more new content. And happy holidays to you and yours. Welcome to Tech Intersect. I'm your host, Tanya Evans, and my life and work exist at the heart of law, business, and technology. Yeah, I've earned a few fancy titles and degrees over the years, but the bottom line is I'm a writer, speaker, teacher, and lifelong learner. And I'm really excited that you've joined me on this journey. So what is Tech Intersect? Well, it's authentic, empowering conversations with really interesting guests who demystify complex topics to prepare you for the future, because your future is now. And it exists where law, business, and tech intersect. Get ready to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. In this episode of Tech Intersect, I chat with Akin Sawyer, the managing director of Fellerman Limited, a venture advisory firm focused on leveraging blockchain technology to create value in underserved communities. Akin serves in a strategy and operations leadership role with Barnbridge, a derivatives protocol built on the Ethereum blockchain. And to add to his impressive list of credentials, Akin began his career at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, in the Technology and General Services Group, where he conducted economic research and data analysis in support of IMF country strategies across Africa, Asia, and Europe. We discussed the current state of the crypto ecosystem, the future of money and work in the United States and abroad on the continent of Africa, and where we go from here. Specifically, we talked about Nigeria as a case study for how distrust in a political and financial system can actually lead to a shift where citizens choose to opt out in order to adopt other self-custody value transfer options. For example, SUSUs, informal lending groups, are a popular means to create and protect wealth based on familiar relationships or affinity groups. They create a community of trust and honor that is off the books. And in the case of SUSUs, they are not digitized. But what if they were? What if they were digitized? We talk about how perhaps they would look a lot like blockchain communities. So we explore what it would mean to digitize cooperative economics for the unbanked, underbanked, and those who want an alternative hedge against government-issued money, also known as fiat. Okay, time to listen, learn, and leverage. Let's get started. It is a high honor and a privilege to welcome this episode's esteemed guest, Akin Sawyer, to the Tech Intersect podcast. He has a storied and impressive professional journey in crypto assets and global economics, especially on the content of Africa. 
Akeem serves as managing director of Fellman Limited, which he founded, and also serves in a strategy and operations leadership role with Barnbridge, a derivatives protocol built on the Ethereum blockchain. And previously, Akeem served as strategy and Africa lead for Decred. Love to hear more about that. And he began his career at the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund in the Technology and General Services Group, where he conducted economic research and data analysis in support of IMF country strategies across Africa, Asia, and Europe. We will talk about all of that and more in a moment. But first, Aki, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the introduction. Absolutely. So before we even dive in, I want to do a personal check-in before we get to the professional. Because this day, this week, this month is like the longest year of my life. So I'm checking in with you to see how you're doing in the midst of this global pandemic that is caused by COVID-19. How are you faring? How are you and yours doing in the midst? Yeah, I mean, I think we're doing pretty well, all things considered. I've sort of been in the crypto space for quite a while. So not, you know, what there wasn't too much of a destabilization in terms of the way I work and the nature of just distributed work in the crypto space. I think the challenges are more around, right, adjustments with the rest of the family and like school and education and trying to balance all those things at home. I think that's where the challenge has been. But I feel like we've been at it for the last six to eight months. So we're sort of getting settled and used to it. So I'm not doing too badly at all. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, I would say the same. I, I absolutely agree. When the pandemic first hit in earnest, I was the associate dean of academics at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. And so I was tasked with getting everybody online, you know, 40 plus law professors, like in 72 hours and the stress level of what that looked like initially. We know so much more now. It is far from perfect, but settling into this particular flow to to manage this particular moment I would agree with you. We've kind of found our way to this this way station, but I look forward to being out of this. I, I yeah, definitely. <laughs> so we're going to cover uh, two main topics today, the future of money and the future of work. But if you could briefly share with the audience your origin story, I love your your background and your expertise. And I think it, it's so wonderful and rich because it fully informs the work that you're doing now. And from so many of the Tech Intersect interviewees, they've all come to the intersection of tech and business and law in a different way. So share with folks how you found your way, my goodness, to the IMF and all of those uh, great stations that followed. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, so I was, I mean, I was born in the United States, but I was raised in Nigeria, right? So my parents, you know, moved back to Nigeria in the 70s. They were here for college and grad school. And until, I mean, I lived in Nigeria all through, you know, secondary school, high school. And at the time, you know, it was a series of successive military governments, like through the eighties up until the early nineties. And, you know, growing up, like the two most important institutions were whoever was the president, right. Who ruled by decree um, and the IMF, because the IMF was basically like the lender of choice. Um, and also drove a lot of economic policy decisions. So I went to college, upstate New York, at Union College. And I got a degree, in, a degree in economics. And I moved down to D.C. after college and 
just got this opportunity to work at the IMF, um, which was an institution I'd grown up hearing about on the news every day. And, and so it was like this sort of like, oh, wow, this is going to be a great experience. Like I could, you know, leverage my degree. I can learn a little bit more about how these organizations function. And so I was there for a couple of years, for two years, and it was a very, very eye-opening experience, right? Because mm-hmm. I think you walk into these organizations with a certain, you know, external perception and the realities on the inside are quite different, you know, extremely politicized, really like the the public what you're sold publicly is not necessarily like the full extent of the reality. Right. right? And, and for me, the experience was that, you know, nation states are all self-interested, right. And, you know, a lot of the global financial and global institutions really serve at the behest of the, you know, the most powerful nations that fund them, right. And Mm -hmm. lead them. So I did that for a couple of years, spent a year after that at Freddie Mac doing like secondary mortgage finance on the mm-hmm. business and tech side. And then I went to business school at Dartmouth, um, got my MBA, then moved back to DC and then really spent the core of my career doing management consulting um, mm-hmm. in the federal government space. So a lot of like financial reg agencies, some time at Homeland Security, you know, did that for a few years. And then I joined Fannie Mae. Mm-hmm. Um, also back to mortgage finance, but more in a strategic role, um, supporting capital markets businesses and all the um, the legal team and you know HR, so all the shared mm-hmm. services organizations. Um, did that for a period of time, and literally, you know, kind of was there right at the beginning of the financial crisis, as the mortgage markets were failing. And so that was a very very interesting time and interesting thing to kind of watch firsthand. Right. Um, so, you know, after that, I, I kind of left Fannie Mae around that time. It's probably around 2007. And I, I went back to consulting with Woos Allen Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And on this side, like I was working with a lot of the agencies, like all the reg agencies that basically had failed in one form or the other. So the, the task then was, well, how do we fix the financial system and how do we shape regulation and change, you know, structural things and problems such that we didn't have another crisis again. Right. It was sort of interesting kind of being on one side and then shifting to the other, um, trying to repair the system. Spent a couple of years doing that and then decided to focus more on Africa. I kind of got a little bit tired of consulting. I wanted to do some things on my own. Um, I'd gotten involved with mobile payments a few years before that through a company run by a friend of mine, a startup in Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And so I got to sit on the board. And and so I got into fintech essentially that way into, in Africa. So it's sort of like mm-hmm. one thing morphed to another. I started advising like fintech firms that were kind of growing across the continent, just kind of organically. Um, along the way, you know, we ran into this fundamental problem with the remittances. Mm-hmm. You know, Sub-Saharan Africa is the most expensive quarter in the world to move money. And it still is. But the global diaspora, like, you know, at least for Nigeria as an example, on average, you know, moves between 25 and $40 billion a year into wow. Nigeria. And to a large extent, in my view, like, it's a, it's a huge, it sort of props and compensates for a lot of the inefficiencies we have within the country, right? Because right. that's a, just a huge flow of money coming in. And the problem that we saw was that on average, people were paying about 10% in fees, Mm-hmm. It didn't make a lot of sense, right, from a technological standpoint. Yeah, like the technology is there. Like, why is it so expensive? And around that time, 
probably like 2015, 16, I started hearing a lot about Bitcoin, about crypto, about blockchain. And I only really got interested when I realized that there was a way to kind of use protocols to move value, right? And, you know, could this be a system where you can build a new financial rail that just makes it more convenient and cheaper for people to move money into Africa? That was like the first interest. Right. Like, how do we, you know, basically make it cheaper and more efficient? And that's how I got into crypto, you know, got a little bit deeper into Bitcoin, you know, and then, you know, rode the whole like ICO craze with all that innovation and all that. Right. Right. So it was kind of like a interesting time when you got thrown into the deep end and you're just trying to like learn as much as possible. And so one thing led me to another. I started thinking about governance as a just important vector. Mm-hmm. My view was like, how are you going to govern these new marketplaces? That's the way I kind of saw them. Um, right. Back on economics, I was like, all right, there's a shift in terms of how markets are going to be organized. And I got really interested in like how these things are going to be governed and how that's going to impact right, the ability for these networks to continue to proliferate and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, my origin story. Uh, spent a couple of years, about a year and a half in Decred working on governance Mm-hmm. trying to focus on Africa and, you know, eventually kind of earlier this year, I'd say got back to DeFi in that that's sort of what got me into crypto in the first place. Right. And so it just seemed like, you know, in the spring, just there was a lot of buzz around it. And so I'm like, well, I should kind of figure out what's going on. And so, you know, jumped into the market really at the right time to sort of catch the summer of DeFi. And, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up at Barnbridge. So. That's sort of like a quick summary. Brilliant. That's wonderful. Well, let's stay on that topic for a second then about decentralized finance and, you know, kind of the power and promise of what DeFi brings to the space specifically. And what what are you excited about in the DeFi market? And then on the other side of that, what are you most concerned about? You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Well, I guess I'm fundamentally excited about the ability or the opportunity to, to some extent, get rid of like this classic problem in economics, right? The principal agent problem. Right. Right. Where the reason why we have regulations, the reason why we have a financial system as it is, is because in most of the current financial world, you have a fiduciary, right? Someone in the middle is the arbiter of transactions, right? And there's essentially supposed to be the trusted entity that ensures that, right, the principal, like you and me, who is interacting in that system is taken care of, right? We don't lose our money. Right. Then you have the government regulating all these entities, making sure they don't like, you know, redirect our funds into the wrong places or into high risk. So you have this like reg structure that's grown over time right? That's basically supposed to watch the money, but introduces a lot of like inefficiencies and cost, Mm. right? So looking at, you know, DeFi and crypto, it's like, well, all of a sudden you can program the rules, right? Directly into the market, 
And you can now create a system where principals can interact with principals and you don't need agents. And if you don't need agents, then you need less regulation. And if you have less regulation, you, you, you extract. So you, you remove costs because you're removing agents and you remove costs because you're, you, have, you need less regulation. And then you reduce friction in economic activity, right? right. Which means peers globally can just exchange value in a, in a much more sort of direct way. And, and that really fascinated me about, you know, DeFi and the space and what was possible. That is a really great perspective. And it reminds me of some of the other interviews that you've done over the months and, and within the last year or so about the fundamental nature of transacting in value. When I think over literally the millennia and you know, we're always talking about this important notion of trust, right? You, you, even what you just described required some element of some quote unquote trusted party. And I hear people talk about the, the crypto space as the absence of trust. And, and it absolutely is not that. Right. But, you know, redirecting trust to Lex Cryptographica, the code, something that you don't you're not required to trust these quote unquote intermediaries, you're not even required to trust the other person at the under, other end of the transaction, but you can trust the process because of some of the reasons that you mentioned. When I, you know, as an educator in the space, I spend a lot of time even before really introducing new entrants in particular into the space, but all people, even if they have some type of tech or finance background, about the fundamental nature of money and value and what that means in a community and how to replicate that with technology, right? When we think of these decentralized communities and we think of the, the crypto protocols and we think of, of decentralized governance and the like, but its origin really comes from those, those trusted insular groups where everybody knew everybody. Right. And I know that that's a driving force even to this day on the continent in various countries in Africa. Can you kind of speak to what that means about, one, having an insular community where, I, in my estimation, the two most important things are trust and reputation? Yep. And once you extend beyond that group into other groups where you may not know them, or certainly when you get past states and countries and the global infrastructure of finance, what that means for the power and promise of blockchain and crypto once you extend beyond. But we'll start there, you know, the insular communities and, and trust and reputation. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I think you bring up a good point. And I think culturally, if you look at historically how African communities broadly sort of organized, I mean, when I was growing up, for example, the classic example was, you know, I'll visit a friend, right? from you know, high school or whatever, you show up at their house, you know, you run into their mom and their mom is like, oh, what's your name? Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't say your last name, they ask you again. And so you give your last name. And the reason for that oftentimes is the reason why they want to know your name is because a lot of reputation and who you are is staked in your last name. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and people over the years culturally used your last name was basically your your credit rating, right? Mm. Because if you're from a certain family, then historically there's some sense of who that family is and their record of, right, where they sit in society, what they've done. And so your name becomes a huge signal in society for basically who you are. 
until you realize that people guard their reputations quite jealously because one person in the family can sort of make or break your family name. Right. So you see credit systems start like in, in, in countries like Nigeria, the credit systems that have evolved where if, for example, I owe a debt and I'm part of a certain family, then it's incumbent on my family to help me clear that debt. Because if I ruin our name, then it affects the whole collective. Yeah. Right. And and so lots of credit systems historically um, in Africa were really based on these affinity groups. Right. So families or you might have groups of farmers in the same industry who essentially built credit systems with themselves. And so that's where right. like, things like SUSU groups or savings groups like emerged. Right. And the thing that's really interesting about it is, you know, like the way a SUSU group works, you know, you can have like a group of 10 farmers, right? You might be cow rearers, right? And what people tended to do was you get together with other farmers and you essentially put a, you know, piece of money or a bunch of money into a pot every month, right? So a, bunch, you know, a little bit of your profits for the month. Right. And every month, right, that pot rotates across the group. So if it's 10 of us, you know, month one, I'm contributing at some point through that 10 month period, I get to like, you know, harvest the pot. And so I can get the pot and go buy a cow, right? Or another. Mm -hmm. cow. And all of a sudden, like, you know, there's an investment there, right? And I get a return from that, from that cow. I grow my business and I keep putting money back in the pot. And so it's a self-funding mechanism. But beyond that, it's also like a social and information sharing network because like all our destinies financially are sort of tied, then we're incentivized to want to share like information and best practices. Right. If I figure out some way like to feed my cow such that the yield of milk increases, then I want to share that with everyone because like, you know, the better, they, the more profitable they are, the more likely it is that, you know, I'll get, you know, they'll keep contributing to the pot and I'll get to kind of take my turn. So if you think about what's happening there, it's like a fairly sophisticated credit system. But it's not just like, you know, credit, it's information, it's a social system, right? And and you've had the proliferation of those groups across Africa for hundreds of years. And colonialism just introduced like different systems. So right. for me, when I, when I look at that, that looks a lot more like the crypto system we have to some extent where, you know, you can leverage reputation, you can leverage all sorts of activity. And it's sort of burned into code, right? So it's more of an advanced technology. But the practical way in which it works, I think, is very aligned with African culture, right? Because it, it gives the power to the individual, right, to determine who they want to interact with, who they want to extend credit to, right? And they can join any groups they want, so any right. currency, right? And so there's so many parallels, right? And I think that culturally, it sort of aligns a lot with the way African society is organized. And by the way, you know, most of Africa today is still, you know, unbanked or underbanked. Right. So you have a system now where you can bring technology to essentially empower, right, the unbanked, but not necessarily impose something that's just foreign or brand new, but something that might now enhance their ability to interact on a much more global scale. And so for me, that's, that's really exciting. We hope you're enjoying this edition of Tech Intersect. Our conversation will continue in a moment, but first, a word on an exciting opportunity. There's a more cost-effective and time-efficient way to reach your leading-edge learning and earning goals. 
to put you ahead of the stiff competition in this fast-paced, tech-driven economy. You need skills, credentials, and a fast track to a competitive advantage. You need it now more than ever, and I can help. The Advantage Evans Method puts you ahead of the curve with condensed, comprehensive online courses, curated content to leverage your current skills and expertise, live coaching, networking opportunities, and more. Upcoming courses include From Cash to Crypto to help you buy your first Bitcoin, and there are two ways to get your advantage. Advantage Evans Encore gives you maximum experience for your total competitive advantage and access for one year. It includes a live welcome and modules on terminology, buying and selling, exchanges, mining, earning crypto, trading and investing, and also several of the legal issues you need to know in order to be safe and secure as you enter this space. That includes tax compliance, how to plan for a Bitcoin estate, and securities laws to make sure you avoid any legal unforced errors. Now, Advantage Core gives you the essentials. It's a short course to give you what you want and the support you need to buy your first crypto in as little as three weeks with access to the information and replays for three months. And if you're not quite ready for your Advantage and want a sneak peek to try before you buy, then register for a free masterclass where I share my Crypto 101 success checklist and cover current hot topics in crypto. So there truly is something for everyone, including you, to get in on the fast track and learn and earn in the digital economy. Visit AdvantageEvans.com to get started. That's AdvantageEvans.com. And now, back to the conversation. That is extremely exciting. Are there specific countries on the continent that are more well-situated or poised to take advantage and really accelerate into the crypto space before others? Yeah, I think so. So I think that Nigeria is the largest country population-wise in Africa, right? So it's like, I think one in five Africans is Nigerian. So you have a critical mass of people. You have one of the youngest populations anywhere in the world. I think the average age is about 18 and a half. Mm -hmm. So in terms of just size and demographics, like you have a lot of potential, right? But you also have the largest population on the continent that is underutilized, right? So you have very young people, you have high rates of unemployment, you have a populace that has basically had to fend for itself for a very long time, right? Because the federal system and the way the country is structured is has been basically like, you know, for extractive needs, right? So oil and gas extraction, the financial system essentially was built around supporting the oil and gas industry, supporting the government, right? They're the basically largest buyers of government debt. So Mm. you have a system that's basically designed or has been designed not necessarily to kind of work for the vast majority of people. Right. And these people have generally had to fend for themselves. So I think you actually have a very interesting opportunity where, if you bring a system that empowers them to continue to kind of figure things out for themselves, but now gives them the opportunity to sort of work on a global scale, right? So you can you can sort of not have to be bound by the restrictions within your border, right? Mm-hmm. So for all of a sudden you have Bitcoin, you can transact globally, right? You have a way to provide services that you can be paid for in a trustless way, 
right? So I could be a developer in anywhere in Nigeria with an internet connection. And I can find my way to coding and providing services and, you know, kind of be judged by the quality of my work and compensated. Like that to me is it's huge because all of a sudden you're not at the behest of a highly inflationary currency. And you're also now at the behest of having to have, you know, be limited in terms of where you can work, right? So all of a sudden right. the value of your work now can be, can be, you know, judged on a global standard, right? And all of a sudden you can get paid, in my view, more equitably, right? Than you would be if you were just stuck in Nigeria and had no other options. That leads into this idea of, uh, and for listeners who have been writing with me for a minute, you know, I'm obsessed with this topic of the future of work. I can, you are as well. And I think that the future of work, you know, goes hand in hand with the future of money. Uh, and actually the future is now in the ways that you've, you've just described. Talk to me about what the future of work means for you. And we can talk about it both here in the States and, and on the continent as well. But, you know, the even the future of work is borderless by the very nature of what you just said and described for those who might be coding in this space or working more broadly in other Web3 technologies. Uh, and also just the nature of education. Th there's a shift. Yes. You know, where people are, we'll hire you for personality and we'll train you for skills, right? So I, I was one of those people who checked all the boxes. I'm a good Gen Xer and I made my parents and grandparents and great, great parents proud by all of the things at the end of my name that allow people to call me doctor. But I know that there's also a fundamental shift away from the necessity of doing that. So talk to me about what you think of when, when you think of the future of work. Yeah. So, I mean, I think to the point I made earlier on, I think that, you know, the organizing theme of the I don't know, 18th, 19th century was around firms, right? And, and firms as a way to interact in a marketplace. Mm -hmm. And you establish a firm when, you know, it's expensive to interact in the market, right? right. So I get a job because... It doesn't make sense getting hired over and over and over again on a project basis, right, in 1950s America. So I end up with a job and I have stability and I can work there forever, you know, get a house, a car and educate my kids. And, you know, so the firm is efficient, right, because as a collective, then you can pay for information, you can organize. There are lots of efficiencies around the firm. But as technology has sort of proliferated and kind of dropped the barriers to access for information, like particularly with, with the internet, like if you mm -hmm. think about what's happened since the internet has has come, right? You know, for example, how you receive and disseminate news has changed. So the value of newspapers, the value of channels where people got information, you know, in the last generation has has tanked. Right. right? Like investing in media or in news media has been a losing game for like thirty years. Because all right. of a sudden, hey, there's the internet. Like today on Twitter, like I get most of my information on Twitter through channels I've developed. Like I don't need to subscribe to a newspaper necessarily. Right? Right. And so if you think about what that is, like I can now use like, an, like a free platform essentially and with little effort get access to all the information I want globally. You know, that destroys the nature of, you know, a standard newspaper business or even like TV and broadcast news. So all of a sudden, right. advertisers have now shifted to social platforms, 
right? And and so that's that's there's been like a essentially a, a shift over time. And with Web3 and crypto, you now have a native way to exchange value. So all of a sudden, you know, it's much more, in many ways, it's actually more efficient to be a free agent in certain industries, right? Because if you're really, really good at what you do, right, then you will you will be able to extract maximal value, right? right? So if I'm the best video gamer in the world and I have millions of people watching me every night stream a video game, I could be a multimillionaire, right? And Absolutely. that's right, and that's that's a job that didn't exist like I don't know, fifteen years ago. Right? And, and, Five, right? <laughs> right. And so you're seeing all this stuff where all of a sudden, you know, individuals can are now extracting maximal value because they can interact directly in the marketplace and don't need an intermediary to do that, right? And and so it's 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 more evident in like digital type jobs like where you can like code anywhere and like deploy your code anywhere. And you have all these systems that people can review and interact. Any sort of like content creation is now becoming more of a premium. And I think, you know, you know even post COVID, right? Being able to write well is, is prized, right? Because right. now a lot of communication is writing or speaking. And, and so if you think about what's happening inherently, and, and I don't think we're gonna go back to like the levels of face-to-face employment we had prior to COVID, Right. All of a sudden, like there are all these dynamic shifts that are happening. And so the question is, I think in general, firms are going to be devalued more and more over time or they're going to have to change and shift because all of a sudden the individual has a lot more power because they have at least as much information, if not in some instances, even more information than the corporation. Right. right. And I think that what that really does, it, it kind of flips things on, on its head because you're going to be, we're in a system now where I think people that are in a certain space who don't see that shift, you know, it could be a hard transition, right? right. If you think about what's been happening too, like the firm has never really been loyal to the individual, like for the last 30 <laughs> years, like the firm is free to hire and fire and hire and fire. And so those jobs that used to be stable are really not. So it's sort of like the question is, at one point, does the individual now realize that, look, I have a lot more power than I used to, and I'm going to interact in the marketplace directly and, you know, try to figure out ways to earn an income, to develop a reputation, to be known for something, right, or being good at something. And you, it's easier for you to be discovered and be compensated. Mm. So I think to me that those fundamental shifts are being accelerated by crypto, are being accelerated by just all this technology. And I think the future of work is really going to be a lot more distributed and you're going to have, you know, hyper cost efficient ways to discover talent just in time, to pay for talent just in time, right? And mm. for individuals to sort of have a very, very different like lifestyle and, and a different set of choices. I love that. It's very well stated. And that makes me even more excited for the future of work, the future of money and the intersection. You clearly live at the intersection. Um, I'm looking up at the time. I've got to let you go back to real life. Sure. <laughs> but before I, before I let you go, please tell the listeners, I certainly will share the links that you shared with me in the show notes, but please let the listeners know how they can learn about you any upcoming events or information and, and certainly your continued work? Yeah. So, I mean, I think people can find me on Twitter. It's like first name, last name is my handle. I can Sawyer. I'm, I'm kind of, that's like, 
you know, the, the crypto town square. So I'm there every day. Love it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, just to sort of add, like a lot of, we didn't really touch what I've been doing at Barnbridge, but, you know, we're, we're sort of essentially rebuilding, in my view, like the financial system in a much more fair and distributed way. Yes. So like any kind of products or services you see in the real world, you know, someone somewhere is trying to recreate it in the crypto space mm. and do it better, faster, cheaper. And I think that's really what's going to drive a lot of value accrual in the space, because from a competitive standpoint, traditional industries could j just can't compete, right? I think they can extract right. some value by incorporating some of these technologies internally, but you just can't compete with a marketplace that's fully open and decentralized. And I think that's sort of at the crux of what's happening, right? And it's going to be a, it's going to be interesting to see how, you know, that grinds against, you know, the regulatory system against, right. you know, the traditional financial system. And I think that also is going to like, in certain ways, really fracture, you know, the global political landscape, because, you know, you'd have, I think you'd have a lot more ability for countries to be independent, mm -hmm. corporations to be independent, because you don't necessarily need to be bound by you know, a physical sovereign nation. So I think nation right. states are actually going to get weaker because a lot of the reasons why nation states exists, maybe other than defense at this point, mm. like a lot of those reasons are going to be actually less important. And so that's going to be an interesting thing to see over the next few years. Absolutely, because it comes down to this, you know, idea of a, a customer service crunch, you know, as a matter of business and finance and law and politics, and not just the tension, but really what we're seeing as the breaking through to some completely different delivery and connectivity between the individual and the other individual. Right. Removing, you know, the all of the intermediaries, as you said. And of course, we'll have different intermediaries who may emerge, yep. but hopefully with less of that, you know, extraction that makes it so much more difficult uh, as a matter of friction and cost to transact in, in a global economy. Um, that's really exciting. Uh, Akin, I'm so happy that you are on here. I'm glad that the Twitterverse brought us together. <laughs> sure. Um, and this is the first, but hopefully it won't be the last of our conversations. Um, I think the world of what you're doing in the space and and how much you bring in terms of your expertise and intellect. So I look forward to the continued conversation. Me too. Thanks for having me. Look forward to the next one. Many thanks to Akin Sawyer for an engaging and informative conversation about the future of money and work on the continent of Africa and beyond. We ran out of time, so I promised him that I'd have him back to talk about his amazing work at Barnbridge, now, Barnbridge is a really exciting project, and it is the first risk tokenizing protocol, and its purpose is to integrate with other protocols to facilitate hedging yield risks on those lending and other platforms. It's the next phase of decentralized finance, or DeFi, so I look forward to having him back to talk about that more, and I have some links in the show notes to give you some additional information. Final housekeeping notes, please take a moment to like, comment, and share this episode and this podcast with your networks. Follow me on social media and let me know what topics you'd like to hear more of and who you'd like to hear more from. All right, that's all for this episode. Until next time, continue to shine.
stay in touch with host Tanya Evans via your favorite social media on Twitter at at Tech Intersect and on Instagram via the handle Tech Intersect. This podcast has been produced by Stephanie Renee for Soul Sanctuary Incorporated.